Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. Well, the other day I was searching YouTube and I came across a clip that I thought I might share with you. There is no other species on the planet that responds as quickly and as dramatically to the good times as the desert locust. Eggs that have remained in the ground for 20 years begin to hatch. The young locusts are known as hoppers, for at this stage they're flightless. They find new feeding grounds by following the smell of sprouting grass. Normally, it takes four weeks for hoppers to become adults, but when the conditions are right, as now, their development switches to the fast track. As the vegetation in one place begins to run out, the winged adults release pheromones, scent messages, which tell others in the group that they must move on. And when groups merge, they form a swarm. An adult locust eats its entire body weight every day, and a whole swarm can consume literally hundreds of tons of vegetation. They have to keep on moving. The swarm travels with the wind. It's the most energy-saving way of flying. Following the flow of wind means that they're always heading toward areas of low pressure, places where wind meets rain and vegetation starts to grow. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues several billion strong and as much as 40 miles wide. They will consume every edible thing that lies in their path. This is one of planet Earth's greatest spectacles. It's rarely seen on this scale, and it won't last long. Once the food has gone, the steady roar of a billion beating locust wings will once again be replaced by nothing more than the sound of the desert wind. Well, locusts are basically grasshoppers. Like grasshoppers, most of the time, They mind their own business and don't bother anyone. But when the weather conditions are right, they start to swarm together. And when they swarm, they eat like nothing on earth and breed frantically. As Mr Attenborough said, an adult locust will eat its own weight every day. Think about that. Now, I like food more than most of you, but it would take me more than 24 hours to get through 100 kilos. Take me a long time. Apparently not if I was a locust. That clip was taken, I think, in East Africa. Early last year, just as COVID was really taking off, there was a swarm of locusts in the western part of India that was about the size of East Christchurch. Possibly 7 billion insects. They can be, apparently, a lot bigger than that. 
There is a recording, and I don't know how the heck they would justify this, but in 1875, apparently there was a swarm in North America that was the size of the state of California. Perhaps 12 trillion insects. Can't get my head around that. They are that most biblical of insect, because the Middle East is a happy hunting ground for them. Locusts was one of the plagues, you might recall, that um, God sent on Egypt to try to get the Jewish people freed. East Africa has been plagued by them for millennia, and swarms of locusts are talked about in writings going back to the year Dot. Now, there was an Old Testament prophet called Joel. He lived in Judah, so he was a prophet to the Jewish people. Now, we don't know exactly when he was prophesying, but what we do know is that Judah had just been through a double whammy. that had the locusts come and eat everything, and then the rain stopped, so nothing grew back. And in Joel chapter 1, he compares this experience to being like invaded by a hostile army, which has just consumed everything in its path. And he talks about the drunks being thirsty because there's no grapes to make the wine. There's no grain or grapes to make offerings at the temple. And the stock are crying in the fields from their hunger. It's a pitiful picture. And in amongst that, he calls to the people to repent of their sins. Now two things stand out for me in this book if you've read it. The first is that Joel laments and mourns. He doesn't feel the need to rationalise away or minimise their lot. I, I remember visiting a guy in a rest home who had trouble with mobility, sight and hearing. And when I commented on the struggle it must be for him, he said, oh, there's people far worse off than me here. Yeah, but so what? The second thing is that he doesn't name the sins. He doesn't name the things that God is particularly unhappy about. He just says, Repent. He calls them to re return from their sin. And in Joel 2, there is a vivid description of what the day of the Lord will be like, drawing on their recent experience of the locust. And in this picture, the Lord and his angelic hosts are sort of compared to the locusts who fall on the world and destroy evil. Joel then rapidly pivots to God and his mercy will restore his people and their prosperity, prompted by their prayers of repentance and lament. Joel 2.25 has this very memorable quote of God saying, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, or I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. It's one of the first verses for me as a newish believer that I seized on, because I had given several years to the locusts. In my case, doing nothing at university for three years except playing sport and partying. Frittering away my time with nothing of any consequence. I heard a woman who'd come out of a very bad and violent marriage say the same thing, that she felt like she had been repaid for the years that the locusts had eaten in her marriage. Has God restored stuff in your life periods in your life like that it does seem to be the way he works can I urge you to reflect on that and if he has give him thanks the rest of Joel 
is this description of the day of the Lord, when the nations will be judged and God's people will be blessed for their faithfulness. If you put your New Testament spectacles on, it's the second coming of Jesus and it's judgment day. And in amongst the prophecies, there are, there's this. Then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents, that's omens, in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Peter picked up this, these verses in that first Christian sermon that he did that's recorded in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost at one of the Jewish feasts and all these uh, Jews from other countries had gathered together to worship at the temple. And it's apparent from Joel's prophecy up there that he saw the outpouring of the Spirit and the day of the Lord, the end of all things, as being kind of close together, side by side. They seem to be talking about the same time. Yet here we are between verses 29 and 30, and we've been there for 1,990 years and counting. It's puzzling that we are still here. And the, the best explanation for that, as I've thought about that, is I wonder if the prophets looking forward sort of had a bit of a concertina effect going. They saw these big events. And the next big event, I suppose, after Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit would be judgment and the day of the Lord. But it's like looking at a mountain range. You can see the mountains next to each other, but you don't see the valleys. You don't see the smaller mountains that might be between those high ones. There might be vast spaces. Maybe that's an explanation. Another way of thinking about it is that these prophecies have multiple fulfillments. And if you think about it since Joel's time, if we date him early, there have been a number of big endings for God's people. Judah being invaded and taken away into exile by the Babylonians in 580-odd BC. The temple being destroyed at Masada. There's a picture of the Masada fortress where they hold up in AD 70 when they were revolting against the Romans. And finally, Judgment Day, somewhere off in the undetermined future. It seems to me that either the term, or the phrase, the last days, are a very long period of time, despite all the language around them, or Joel and Peter were focused on the last days of the temple worship at Jerusalem, which did happen shortly after this time. I'm not sure. It puzzles me. It's one of the Mysteries of the faith is the Masada rebellion that we take with us. Why well, take with me? Well, today, as I said, is the day of Pentecost. Remember what really is the birthday of the Christian church. And I'm going to read from Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of various places that I can't pronounce, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, oh, they're just filled with new wine. It's a pretty dramatic event. Rounded out by the cynics, they say, no, they're just on the terps. It was a miraculous thing that they'd all witnessed. Now, once or twice in my life, I have been amongst especially convivial company where the alcohol has flowed. And I can tell you that drinking lots does not increase your linguistic ability. In fact, if anything, it tends to degrade the one language that you can speak to the point that you're incomprehensible. And Peter goes on. Men of Judah and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Not sure if that's necessary, King Hip, anyway. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Then afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit. You that are Israelites, listen to what I say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freedom from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. the long prophesied outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all the people. In one of his letters, Peter describes the people of God, us, as a royal priesthood. Thus there were no longer priests and lay people. All believers were to be priests and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is a big shift. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon you know, leaders and priests and prophets for particular purposes and sometimes only for, for particular times. We see Saul was given the spirit at one point and then he lost it at another. They were given the spirit to be enable them to perform their roles. But for us, God, in those days, God was with his people but was only in a few of them as required. Joel's prophecy looked forward to a time at which God's Spirit would be poured out on everybody, all of his people, even the lowest of slaves. Peter said, that time is now. 
The Spirit has been poured out because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, who was the promised Messiah sent by God. Everything is different now. Our Transforming Power document picks up this point when it says one of our aspirations is to be priests to each other. What does that mean, to be a priest? First thing is, when you say, I invited Jesus into my heart, technically that is not, strictly speaking, what happened to you. The Holy Spirit of God, what the New Testament sometimes calls the Spirit of Christ, is he who came and indwelt you. Ephesians 4 describes believers as being sealed in the Spirit. It's God marking us. See the 13 on his backside? I spared you the pictures of it happening because it's a grisly business. In the same way that my farming cousins would brand a bull as theirs in case it leapt the fence to their neighbour's property. The Spirit is God in us. The Spirit is God to us. This is the first thing. Second thing, the Spirit is there to guide, teach, and point us to Jesus. Have you had the experience of hearing something and thinking that just something feels wrong or sounds wrong? Maybe in one of my lesser sermons you've had that experience. Maybe five minutes ago you had that experience. See if you can spot the deliberate mistake today. I heard a word from the Lord at a meeting once. I can't remember the exact phrase, but it went like something like this. You're all a pack of wasters, and God has no use for any of you. Thus saith the Lord. Strangely, the Lord seems to speak in Elizabethan bar King James English in most of those prophetic utterances. I was only 21 and a new believer, and I didn't sort of feel able to say anything, but I knew that was wrong. It wasn't our God. So the second thing. Third thing, the Spirit supplies the food and fuel to live out the Christian life. We are not supposed to be living in the power of our own efforts, but in the power of the Spirit. Acts 1.8 records the risen Jesus telling the apostles that the Spirit would come upon them and empower them to be his witnesses. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. It's an ongoing thing, present continuous. By constantly confessing your sins and leaning into the Spirit to get through life. That's what he's looking for. And over time, the Spirit will produce the fruit of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, kindness, goodness, peace, patience, self-control, and I've got that in the wrong order, but you get it. That's the third. And fourthly, the Spirit will equip you for your priestly service and ministry. So there's those four big things. Holy Spirit's role in our lives. Seal us, lead us into truth, empower us to live a Christian life and equip us to be priests. So I started at the scriptures, unpacked what that should look like in theory, and now I reckon the best way to do this is to give you some examples. To try to show you what this looks like on the ground. And I've got some examples for you. There is the priestess Judy Moore, front and centre down here. I sense that she has the gifts of something like teaching, shepherding, and wisdom. 
When Jan has given me a good chewing out on a board meeting on a Thursday night, and if you ever see me limping on a Friday, you'll know what's happened. Judy is the one who helps me pick up the pieces and carry on. Judy is one of the wisest people I know, and that's a God thing. I sense a similar combination of gifts in Jeff Williams. Then there's the priest Barry Weston, who will hate me saying this. He listens, he encourages, and he takes time with people. He's a little P pastor. When I meet ex-Opawa people, and that happens quite a lot because there seems to be a lot of them, they invariably ask after Barry. I think because you showed them kindness. The little stuff counts. You don't need a badge or a recognised ministry role to do that. Jen Sands is another in that branch of the priesthood. So is Karen Wilson. People get nervous now, aren't they? <laughs> I'm not finished. And then there's Priestess Mary Watson, who's relatively new to church life. And I sense one of your gifts being administrative leadership. You have pulled the rabble that is the messy church volunteers into a cohesive team. We meet over dinner. Lots of humour. It's fun. And not forgetting his grace, junior high priest Philip. One of the best elders I've ever seen at handling, actually the best elder I've ever seen at handling church conflict. And he's passionate about connecting with his local neighbourhood. Now Ephesians 4 Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 list a variety of spiritual gifts. But fills don't seem to fit neatly into those categories. Call me a heretic, but I don't know that that matters all that much. Charles Wesley wrote hundreds of hymns, including classics such as Love, Divine or Love's Excelling, which you older Baptists sing with all the wrong tune. And Hark the Herald Angels Sing that we are still singing. Maybe he had the extra-biblical spiritual gift of writing Christian songs. If he did, so does Chris Tomlin, so does Stuart Townend, but it's not in those biblical lists. Now, Priestess Emma is a bit the same. She describes her gift as being gap-filling. Fits with what I see. She can do everything from prepare a kids' program, run a roster, rebuke me in love, plan an event, or rewire a light. Anything that is required. God's Spirit works through her and her gifts for good. And that is, I think, what counts. Now, priest Alan Curry, the blimmin' flipper himself, Loves kids much more than he loves any of the rest of us, I think. Possible exception of Carolyn. His gifts of teaching and maybe mercy have kind of blended with his passion for kids. Priestess Esther is a musterer of lost or wayward sheep. Who here has been mustered by Esther? Yep, I see those hands. There's a blend of gift and passion. And like many of you, she's had to work out what that looks like with less energy than she used to have. It won't be the same as it was 25 years ago. And that's a cost. And that can be a challenge. 
Now, I have embarrassed all these good people because, frankly, it's been a lot of fun to do that. But also, I want to try and show you what I'm talking about. The Spirit has gifted these folk for service and ministry as priests and empowered them to walk the Christian life day by day. Now, when you encounter Christian people at our best, you are encountering a Spirit-empowered and spiritually gifted priest. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2.10. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before us to be our way of life. What sort of priest has he made you to be? If you're not sure, then talk to wise Christian people that know you well. Failing that, come have a chat with me. The lists in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4 and Romans 4 are not definitive, but I think they are good places to start. And reflect on what roles and things that you've done that you've really found enjoying and fulfilling and enriching. Now, if you are clear what sort of priest you were made to be, how is your role being exercised and developed? That will look different at different stages of life, and that's okay. But the question still is, where is God leading you? What is he leading you into? Final point. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says this. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. If you are a believer, you have at least one spiritual gift. But newsflash, it's not for you. It's for us. It's for the benefit of the wider body of Christ, the common good. And if you are not using it for the good of the wider church, you are robbing the rest of us. And that is just not an option. You know, I showed you those pictures of those locusts. And like I said, locusts just sort of hang around doing not much of anything when they're on their own. But when the conditions are right, they are brought together. And as they swarm together, they, they breed and they eat and they travel in packs. And that's when they are their most locust-like. And they are buffeted around by the wind. Quite a good description, I think, of the body of Christ. We come together, and when we come together, when the Spirit brings us together, we are effective. We spark off each other. We can bruise each other, I get that, but it's where we are the most effective. This is a team sport. This is rugby, it's not tennis. When we swarm, and when we swarm, we are guided by the Spirit, much as the locusts are guided by the wind. They don't see it, they don't see where it comes, but it just takes them to where they're supposed to be. And if you are not yet a believer in the Lord, being part of the priesthood that is the Christian community at its best is what God is calling you into. And if you're here this morning, then I'm guessing that you already have some inkling of that. Perhaps it's time to do something about that. Come on.
come home. Let's pray. Lord, life can be pretty challenging and a little confusing. But help us, we pray, to find our way. To know who we are in you, as your child, but as your child with a particular priestly calling. Help us to have the faith and the courage to use what you have given us for good. And if we're on the outside looking in, Lord, I pray that we would make the next step towards engaging with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.